You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How's it going? Very well, very well. I don't think it's as as good in Ireland as it is in America because I think you're easing up in your lockdown while we're still yeah. in prison. Oh, that's so sad. I spent most of the day outdoors today, but you look like you've been inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for our listeners, you, you, we can see each other and like you're getting browner by the day and I'm just the pasty Irish girl beside you. <laughs> <laughs> But, so um, today, interesting yeah. day today, right? It's an unusual episode today, and it's one that's been coming a long time. Because we've since the beginning, we've been wondering how is it coming across? What are listeners thinking? You know, what are we hitting it right? Are we getting the right questions? Are we getting the right kind of explorations? And so, firstly, of your idea, Sasha, you said let's do a shout out and see what they come back with, and. Oh, my God. It was a deluge. It was so many and so many, frankly, brilliant. And every time I got one of these kind of ideas, I think, oh, yeah, of course we have to do that. And why don't I think of this one? And oh, God, I have to do it. And at this stage, myself and Sasha, you'll agree, we have a catchphrase, which is we have to do an episode on that. Yeah. Yeah. We say that about every single in- incoming message, email, comment. So I just want to start by saying thank you to everybody who sent us these really thoughtful, fabulous ideas for shows. And so we tried to categorize them. Right. So what we're going to do today is answer a couple of questions that we think are maybe more specific that we can tackle in one episode. Um, So it'll be a bit of a a hodgepodge, I suppose. And then towards the end, we're going to share with our listeners uh, really good ideas for entire episodes that we plan to do in the future. Exactly. So shall we start with the first uh, topic here, the first question that we're going to answer today? Yeah, you read out the first one and then we'll kind of go at it. Okay, so the the first question, um, I don't have the exact wording, but a listener asked about, you know, this concept of being born in the wrong body, how might that relate to uh, individuals who are born with a disability, like a physical disability, or a chronic illness where their body is really um, in pain or not functioning the way it used to, and somebody who is feeling out of place for those reasons, how might that concept of being born in the wrong body land on somebody like that? And I thought this was a fascinating question and something I spent actually a good deal of time thinking about when I first started doing this work. I was really grappling at straws, trying to think of um, what are some analogous situations here in which changing the body is not the first kind of prescription. And what had come to mind at the time for me was like, well, what about people who have some kind of a, an, an ab, I want to, I want to be careful about the wording, but an unusual 
kind of body difference. I think that's the term people are using these days, but like a, a physical deformity, like might they feel like, well, I wasn't supposed to have this particular face or this particular arm or this particular shape. So I, I have lots of thoughts about this. Let me just kind of throw it back to you, Stella. What do you, what do you think? I think it's an extraordinary concept. When I first heard it, I was born in the wrong body. It's like I wear it back on what? Born in the wrong body? Let me think about that as a sentence, because we are born in our bodies. We cannot be born without our bodies. So can you actually be born in the wrong body? It's, it's, it's actually, it makes my brain kind of stop. <laughs> just <laughs> halt like a horse coming up to a, a too high jump I'm like sorry born in the wrong body and I stop yeah, yeah. and I retreat back and going but wait and then I think so many people like you know there's a very very famous film in Ireland from the 90s but it's called My Left Foot won mm-hmm. loads of Oscars and about it's about an amazing man called Christy Brown who um, literally uh, couldn't do anything except waggle his left foot, waggle the toes of his left foot. That is all he could do. His mother was an amazing woman, beautiful film, really, really recommend it. Um, born with, I think it was cerebral palsy, but certainly, you know, he was absolutely challenged on every level, couldn't speak, and became a famous painter and wrote an amazing book called Down All the Days. Novel. You know, this wasn't about his life. This was just, and uh, he also wrote, I think, a, a memoir about his about his life. And I think, without a doubt, you would say he was born in the wrong body, as in his body was so difficult. It was so difficult to do anything, to eat, to drink, to to try to do anything. Um, and then you go further, you go a little bit further. And I, I remember my mother would always say, you know, no matter what problem you have in life, she used to say, or would still say, of course, she's alive. She'd say, you could, you could, you could look at everybody else's problems, but you'd still choose your own. Mm. She has this very deep within her that you, you kind of take your own problems because you, you know them. And I, I've always thought that was very interesting when she said that, because I used to think, would you? Would I take somebody else's life? If I was offered it, would I take it? If you said, come on, you can have this life. Do you want it? Or would something territorial within me say, no, I'm sticking with me? That's really interesting. So many, so many sparks fall out of my head when I hear the phrase born in the wrong body. Quite yeah. apart from the political point of, it was from, as far as I can gather, you know, in, in the 1970s, the, the, the gay liberation movement was um, very much driven by the concept of born this way. And people were born this way. And that was why we needed to accept sexual orientation. And, you know, there was some very, very um, important and valid kind of movement came from the gay liberation movement. And I, I, my own hypothesis is because the LGB and the T got merged in the 90s, they took born this way and then moved it, I would argue, to born in the wrong body. It, mm. it feels like a very conceptually take two. And then, like, as we know, you know, a lot of people see trans as the new gay. And it, it, it feels like this is, this is concepts that are, are moving beyond what the concept began with. Because we are born this way, and yet we are mm-hmm. definitely not born in the wrong body. 
in my view. Mm. Well, I'm thinking about how these phrases become so literal, you know, I can certainly imagine that people in, in, in the history of time who have struggled, let's be specific, let's say about with gender, right? I can certainly imagine how metaphorically someone might come to their therapist or their priest or, you know, back in the day, whoever they speak to and say, I feel like I'm born in the wrong body. This body is not mine. But then we, we have kind of taken that and made it very, very literal. And so like, no, literally, this is not my body. I, I'm not, I don't belong in this. These breasts are not mine. These hips are not mine. And yet I think there's probably a very almost poetic and metaphorical truth there that like it feels that way. I feel so alienated from myself. But yeah. I get what you mean that, well, actually, factually, that's impossible because we are only born in our own bodies. And as a matter of fact, if you had been born in a different body, you might not even be who you are. Your your mind, your personality, your your sense of self would not be what you think it is now. The, the only option. Yeah, yeah. The only option was to be born in the body you were born in because otherwise you yeah. would be somebody else. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. Uh, what you're saying about the alienation of the person. And I remember Ollie Lambert, who did the, uh, who's director of of the film I did, Trans Kids. It's time to talk, and he said, you know, born in the wrong body is a great description of a feeling, but it's not a diagnosis. Yeah, it's like yes, and yet it became, it like you say, it moved, culturally, it became a literal interpretation that oh, they're born in the wrong body, we have to give them a new body, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of jaw dropping that this might have happened. But yeah. to go back to the listener's question, she said, how might it feel for people who've been born with very challenging physical, um, very, very, very intense physical challenges? How would they feel when they hear that yeah. person with a perfectly healthy body was born in the wrong body, while I apparently was born in the right body? Mm. But, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I. I used to, um, well, I still, I still have these resources, but I scouted around for a long time for videos, talks, uh, TED Talks, resources created by individuals who had physical abnormalities, like physical abnormalities that were so clearly noticeable by others. Because I was curious, what is it like to walk around the world, let's say with a face that looks very unusual and that everybody is going to stare at you or everybody is going to be shocked when they see you? What's that like? And um, it was really interesting and inspiring to, to listen to, you know, young people or people with these kind of unusual appearances talk about how you cannot allow yourself to be defined by this characteristic of yours. And you have to still figure out who you are as a person and live your life and do what you feel is valuable and learn to accept yourself. And this is kind of making me think about the medical model of how people treat dysphoria because it's, and same with intersex conditions, right? It's like we have this um, kind of like, platonic norm of like what is the ideal and so if people have something that varies slightly from that 
we have the medical technology now. We could, we could technically probably operate on lots and lots of people who look slightly unusual or like, for example, on intersex babies, if their genitalia looks different from how female genitalia typically looks, sure, we could operate on them. And I'm not necessarily making an argument that that's wrong because everybody has to decide for themselves, you know, but it kind of, it kind of robs the world of this possibility of being slightly outside the norm and still owning yourself with confidence and pride that probably takes a long time to nurture, you know? So I, I don't know. I don't know what that would be like. And I can imagine if there's an individual who has a physical difference that is really profound and they're feeling like upset about it and they're struggling with it and they're wishing every day that they had a more typical appearance. I can imagine that that person might look at the transgender experience and perhaps, perhaps they might think that's unfair. I don't get it. That's not right. And, and on the other hand, maybe they would look at a transgender person and say, I totally get what you're going through. Cause I feel that in a different way. You know, I have no idea. You're shaking your head. Uh, yeah, I'm shaking my head and thinking big things are happening in this world, and we we are we are only we are our understanding is is, is limited of it. Okay, I'm thinking of so many things. I'm thinking of the Swan. Is that what it's called? That TV program where somebody would come along. I know she was an Irish presenter, and she was over in America presenting this program. That's why I know about it. And um, so somebody who maybe wasn't classically good looking would come along. And they would diet and they would get cosmetic mm. surgery and then they would become the swan and they would be beautiful. And oh. a, a, a piece of me would die because I think, oh, because when you look in the mirror after you've had an awful lot of surgery, I know that I'm not talking about trans, I'm just talking about cosmetic surgery. Mm-hmm. What do you think when you look in the mirror? Do you think this is me? I know they'll tell me they think that's the best life. I'm living my best life. That's the best me. But is there something more psychically uh, profound happening when you're looking in your eyes? Have Have you lost yourself or something? I I don't know. Have yeah. you betrayed yourself or almost dishonored who you mm. are? I, I'm really I really wonder about that when you've and then I think well I'm being a little bit hardline because I dye my hair and every time I try to dye it back I end up going back to the I dye my hair red. And I, 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 I ever so often make forays into dyeing a back brown to be my natural colour. Then I always end up back red again. It's kind of hilarious. But you're not a natural redhead? No, no. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm done with you, Stella. Yeah. I never you're a fake Irish person. <laughs> I dyed my hair when I was 16 red through my friend. My friend convinced me to. She basically did it for me. I couldn't care less at the time. She dyed it. And I, I, every single time I've tried to go back, I'm, I'm 46, so that was 30 years ago. Every time I try to go back, people take me aside really nice and say, you're better red still. <laughs> okay. anyway, so like we, we have accepted, we have accepted cosmetic um, changes and we're cool about it. And mm. then I go all woozy woozy about cosmetic surgery, which is frankly just the same. It's just the same. It's just further down the lines. So of what am I talking yeah. about? So it's, that, yeah. that's really complicated. And I kind of think, ah, where am I with it? And yet, if your face has changed 
And even, yeah. you know, to go further and to go into transition, if your voice changes, does something within you change? Are you the same person? I've heard an awful lot of parents say, I almost feel like my, my, my son is a different person now. She's my daughter. She's, she's, mm-hmm. she, she's not who she was when she was my son. I had a son. Now I have a daughter. And they're actually different people. Yeah. Which is really Damn. bringing the born in the wrong body. And she, she, fair enough, I suppose we have freedom to do what we wish in our lives. And But I kind of wonder, you know that John Kabat-Zinn uh, book, The Mindfulness mm-hmm. Book, wherever you go, mm-hmm. there you are. Mm. I just wonder, I, I just think there's so many concepts that blind my brain around this whole point. There's also, I, I don't know where this comes from, please excuse my ignorance, but there's a, some kind of like a philosophical kind of moral conundrum of like if you change a plank on a boat every day, and then every oh, yeah. plank is completely different. Is it the same boat? I don't remember the name of that, right? But yeah. that's kind of reminding me a little bit of this. And after seven years, apparently, we are completely different because all ourselves and, you know what I mean? Yeah. We are. So maybe I'm just being old-fashioned and hardline about it. And maybe, you, 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 yeah, it's the new normal that you change yourself beyond recognition. But I do know that I've never really felt. Now, all these years later, I look in the mirror and I'm me and I've accepted myself. But I, I, I never thought, I never felt a sense of connection with my body when mm. I was younger. There was no, I, I was so born in the wrong body. Like, and I'm talking mm. way beyond when I was a kid with gender issues. I'm talking about when it was 20 or something. I, I knew that was me in the mirror, but mm-hmm. me and my soul, me and me was a different person. I was not mm. the, the person in the mirror. I was just not connected with the way I looked. The way I looked was the kind of body I was looking around with me. You know what I mean? As somebody yeah. said, still clinging to the wreck. Yeah. I think that was what I was doing. I was just looking at my body because I there was no other way to be me than to have this body. And sh- sh- should one change it or should one accept it? I don't know. These are huge concepts. I know. Well, um, it's also like, well, if if you're born, let's say, just metaphorically, right? If you're born in the wrong body, well, then how do you determine what your actual body is supposed to look like if it's not actually what your body looks like? And how do we figure that out? You know, I'm I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, in the in the Arab world, amongst like a certain kind of demographic of people who can afford to do so, a lot of women have a lot of plastic surgery. And I'm not talking about like a little bit. I'm talking about women who end up looking like Michael Jackson almost, you know, like just tons of plastic surgery. Really? And it's interesting to look at over time what various kinds of plastic surgeries have become trendy. And it's almost like you can do it by decade. You know how there's, yeah. you know, fashion, yeah. fashion yeah. in the 20s, fashion in the 30s. Well, now that we have this kind of unlimited array of surgical options, certain types of aesthetics become popular. Like, yeah. you know, butt injections were not a thing in the 80s. And now yeah. having like a huge butt is a big thing in lots of kind of subcultures. I don't know if it's made it out there in Ireland. <laughs> well, it's but, making its way out because you, you, even your words, you say booty or something. And like, you know, <laughs> my kids would say words that I'm just like, that's just American. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the bum, the bum has been fascinating 
Because like at the eighties, like all these women, you can see it in the films. Like they were awful looking in our eyes. But these huge bums are 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 kind of gorgeous, but they're shocking. Like they are yeah. shocking. But it's it's funny that all the avatars and all the kind of Fortnites and all that, these are big assed kind of characters, which is yeah. very much of its time. And God knows what bums will be like in the future. But you know what you were saying that like if you um, were born in the wrong body, so how do you know what is the body that you, because actually what you're actually saying, I think, is because you are being influenced by society. Exactly. So you think exactly. 2021 as your your body, the one that you have picked, you haven't picked that out of a vacuum. You've exactly. picked that, you've picked that exactly. out of a cultural context and it has been shaped by Nike and Coca-Cola and YouTube and TikTok. You know what I mean? You, your, your version of what your body is has been shaped by massive multinational interests that have pushed yes. certain ideals of beauty. And there's, I'm so bad with names, but there's a film I saw that I think it must have been made in the, the, the 80s or early 90s. And it was about a, a man who kind of falls in love with uh, a transsexual like male to female person it was like a really famous movie and I'm not remembering the name of it but what really struck me I watched it probably last year or something and the the trans woman in the film didn't have breast implants and she went during the you know nudity scenes or lovemaking scenes or whatever this this individual had still like a a bare male chest but was still kind of like beautiful in the eyes of the love interest. And I'm thinking about today, if you are a male to female trans person, having like huge fake boobs <laughs> probably is very much part of your concept of what you think you should have been born with. And yeah. even that is a product of the times. I mean, everything that we imagine or fantasize about uh, some of it comes from the subconscious. Some of it is like almost primordial or archetypal, but some of it is also influenced by what the current standards are indicating to us. So, I mean, we, we kind of took this question in a lot of interesting directions, but I just think if we're going to say you can be born in the wrong body, then we also have to ask, well, how do you know what you were supposed to have and, and what influences that? Right. Oh, my God. I don't know if the listener was expecting that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. That is such a good point. I do think an awful lot of, um, of, of, of families that I've spoken to have talked about either medicalized siblings who've had very medicalized lives or, or parents who've had medicalized lives. And they would say, I was the one who was born in the wrong body because I was born with a sickness. You know, yeah. I was born with this sickness. So that is technically a wrong body because it's not a perfectly working body. But they've co-opted my wrong body. And now mm -hmm. they were born with the wrong body. And it's almost a fight. Yeah. For concepts, which is which is really difficult. I looked up the film, by the way. It's The Crying Game. That's the name of I the film. I were you talking about the crying game. I was like, is she talking about the crying game? <laughs> the yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's considered a really no-no these days. That's an Irish film. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's a no-no. I'm sure yeah. it's a no-no these that's, days. Uh, that, that, that's, that's an Irish, a brilliant film. Stephen Ray, he's a really famous Irish actor. And um, 
you know, it, it, that's his film and it kind of made him. It's, I think it's great. I thought the music in it was fabulous. But yeah, yeah it was of its time. Yeah. yeah. It did it very transphobic now because he was only interviewed on Irish TV the other day. And I thought, wait, you see, they won't ask anything about the crying game. And they didn't. <laughs> because, oh, like, interesting. He's, he's, he's considered a great, he's one of our great actors. And he is. But they mm. certainly are directors and uh, they don't go near them uh, about that. But yeah, interesting film. Okay, let's move on. Okay, what do yes. you think? We have hundreds of listeners' questions, so we're so <laughs> not allowed to spend 23 minutes on each one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because we will never get back to our schedule. Good luck. Well, That's we have to zip through. Let's keep going. Okay, so the next question, I'm going to read a few lines from it that the listener goes into lots of detail. But um, this is essentially about, um, you know, oh, friends yeah. and peers of a trans identifying teen. So my 17 year old daughter is dating a female to male boy who's also 17 and both were 16 when they started dating. This is her first boyfriend. Right. So this is an FTM female partner that that mom is using the correct using the preferred pronouns, right? They have a lovely relationship. He seems like a really nice, caring kid. They spend a lot of time together over the past year because we let them uh, be in a study pod during COVID. I do have concerns, though. This is her first boyfriend, and prior to this, she definitely seemed straight. Her crushes in real life on TV, YouTube, movie stars were always male, and she says that she's straight. I know they're in a physical relationship because I've seen that she has hickeys. And we've had some of the talk, the sex talk regarding pregnancy, but obviously this is not relevant in this particular relationship. I'm concerned. Is she experiencing some cognitive dissonance that may cause sexual confusion? Is this an issue you see with other kids? And by the way, you know, mom went on to say she confronted her about this and said, well, I understand that your boyfriend identifies as a boy, but below the waist, I mean, this is technically a lesbian relationship. And the daughter insisted, no, he's a, this is a boy. He's a boy. So mom says, you know, this is an unrealistic relationship with a quote boy. There's a disconnect between the male presenting person who also had a double mastectomy last fall. Wow. At 17. And the the female physical body or sexual organs. So this this question really uh, highlights to me something that I have said probably a million times in parent consults, which is young people today growing up in this gender identity, uh, uh, I guess, world, scene, world. Um, way of understanding things. They just have a different understanding of what these words mean. So yeah. to, to them, they don't think lesbian means, you know, person with a vagina, person with a vagina. They think it means anybody who says they're female, anybody who says they're female. And yeah. same, I think is probably true in this situation. Um, so I would guess that there's probably, I don't know if there's some kind of deep rooted biological uh, cognitive dissonance happening here. Um, but I, I do think that they have a different understanding of what these words mean. And I, it's really hard cross generationally for parents to have these conversations with their kids because they feel really confused by their child's responses to questions. And they're like, what's going on here? Um, yeah. And I think we came from a generation. Uh, I think we did where we were very kind of fixed and quite essential, uh, essentialist about it, like insofar as 
Lesbians were the people who liked vaginas and, you know, homosexuals liked penises and um, the heterosexuals, you know, and we were very clear and we had it all wrapped up and it was all very um, definite. And this generation has come and turned everything on its head. And I wonder, really, might there be a future where you fall for who you fall for? And this, this, this clearly defined, well, how could she call herself? How could she... It's almost psychologically disturbing for mm-hmm. a heterosexual girl, for the parent to watch her heterosexual child be with somebody with, with who is technically who has a vagina because that makes her lesbian. And I, I would say I I I would hope that we might come to a place where that the categories, even though we're almost rapturous about categories now, that the categories won't be so like. You know, you're getting turned on by somebody, you enjoy their company and you're with them and you're exploring their body. And it's not necessarily um, uh, uh, gay, hetero, whatever. Mm-hmm. Could it be freer in the future that you're turned on by what you're turned on? Now, maybe I'm being a complete naive and that's not the way it is. And that is not the way the future is going. Because my other part of my answer is, I would imagine that, yes, this this trans um, boy probably doesn't let his girlfriend touch him down below. I would wonder and I would say there might be an awful lot of complicated and sadness around sex and a lot of dissatisfaction and a lot of tension. And I don't know, because, you know, uh, you know, sometimes if somebody takes if they've had a mastectomy they're presumably on tea and you know your libido certainly shoots up so there could be fabulous fabulous sex better sex than I've ever had <laughs> as far as I know so who, who the how the hell am I to know but I do know it could cause an awful lot of angst and distress I hope it doesn't but it could there you go there's me falling all over the fence <laughs> <laughs> well I thought about the fact that sometimes you know I've heard individuals not necessarily just clients but people I've met who have dated kind of both sexes of people say you know I do just kind of fall in love with the person and like their sex doesn't really make a big difference to me that's quite a fluid way of of understanding your sexuality and perhaps that can be true I mean I know there's some research to indicate that Female sexuality is more fluid in that way. And male sexuality, I mean, I've seen some research by Dr. Lisa Diamond that indicates uh, that actually sexuality for both males and females self-reportedly is is more fluid than we tend to think, right? So I think to your first point, Stella, that's plausible. Um, I, I also wanted to touch on the fact that sometimes trans-identified people that I've worked with or know of who you might presume would be really uncomfortable with their genitals being touched are not necessarily. And I know of, for example, a young uh, trans-identified female who is having penis and vagina sex and thrilled about it and very, very comfortable with her boyfriend. So, um, it's sometimes surprising. I, I can t- no with her boyfriend. Okay, she, she's female, trans identified, right? And she's female, and she has a boyfriend. And so you'd think, oh, she wouldn't want to have 
you know, vaginal okay. intercourse, but right. she doesn't, she's fine with it. I think okay. for some kids really, this feels so label based and I yeah. don't know if it necessarily crosses over to the biological kind of sexual orientation side, but I will say, I think what's really confusing is if you have a person who is more exclusively homosexual or heterosexual, it can be very confusing if they're supposed to be attracted to transgender people who maybe haven't transitioned or maybe they're just not seeing them in the, the sex that they want to be seen. So, you know, if your daughter is one of those people that in the long run ends up being exclusively, exclusively heterosexual, she may look back at this relationship and say, gosh, I think I was kind of confused. Um, but she, she may be one of those young people who's kind of like what we alluded to. Like I just fall in love with the person and she's not phrasing it that way, but that might be what's happening for her. I don't know. One thing that isn't said that should be said, I think a little bit more is that when you aren't attracted to something, somebody, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're, you're kind of repulsed. If you follow me, it's like, you you know what I mean? That if you, if you, if somebody comes on to you and you don't find them sexually attractive, you, 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 the the disgust impulse kind of comes out. Yes. Yes. And I would fear if anybody's going against their instinct because it's politically correct for them to do it, I would fear that they're actually overriding their disgust impulse. Because I I know I've tried to be, I I won't go into it, but I remember I've tried to overcome my disgust because I I, I thought I should be with somebody. And it's, it's very psychically disturbing and awful and awful. And I, I, I remember um, Angus, box in our in our previous episode way back he said something along the lines of um people are bisexual now to be polite and I'm mm. like that's fine that's fine to be polite you know but actually if you have a disgust impulse because it's literally I do not I personally right now I'm obviously whatever I might have been in previous times I'm definitely heterosexual now and to, for me to go to bed with somebody with a vagina and breasts I would literally like my my body would 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 actually shrivel. I'd go ah, I really mm-hmm. would be really repulsed or something. Is that the word? And mm-hmm. that's not saying I love women, <laughs> but it's, it's I just sexually it would just it would absolutely um, choke me. There, yeah, that's so important because the fact that having instinctual proclivities is now being framed as some kind of phobia is so demented. And again, I think we've touched on this before. It divorces us from our instincts. There's so much stuff that we've touched on in various episodes where we say, you know, that person was, was not able to be in touch with their instinct. And this is very, very important. And I think you're so right to bring that up. And, and I think, you know, I don't know if this is your experience, but I remember being younger First of all, as you are figuring out your sexuality, you don't really have much solid ground to stand on. So everything evokes a bit of a confusion response, at least, and maybe even somewhat of a disgust response. Not always. That's not true. Let me like be careful what I say. That's not true. 
But when this this person in the email that came to us is presumably, you know, it's probably one of her first sexual experiences. She's quite young and she probably is too disoriented to know what is disgust versus am I just nervous versus like, does my partner really want me to do this? And it's probably the right thing to do versus like, I really, really want this. And sometimes if you haven't had uh, a number of sexual experiences yet, you don't have a sense of perspective. You know, sometimes you're engaged in certain types of relationships where you're like, I guess this is okay. And then you, you know, become intimate with someone who you are very attracted to. And then you go, Oh, wait a minute. This is what it's supposed to be like. So this young person is probably, you know, not quite oriented yet towards what is best for her or what she really wants or doesn't want yet. And I, I, I would argue if the vibe from the couple is happy enough, if I, as a parent, although I, I would definitely have written in with the same question. Yeah. My, 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 if their attitude and their atmosphere as a couple is quite pleasant, my, my, I think that's exploration. And who cares what way they end up, hetero, homosexual. It's just, a, it's exploration. They're probably glorying in each other's bodies, hopefully. If mm-hmm. they're growing in each other, they're probably just ro- rolling with that. And, and that's that could be lovely. So it's yeah. not necessarily something to worry about, I would say. Yeah. OK, so next next question. Um, do you want to read this one, Stella? Um, it's a very interesting question. Sometimes I'll read it out. OK, sometimes I wonder if our daughter rejects her own identity because of us parents as our role models. Either she might think that it's horrible to be a woman like me and only in a housewife, financially dependent, bound to a not so perfect marriage. Or she might even think, what a cozy and carefree life for a man when his wife manages everything around him, as I do. And so I may be a very bad role model indeed. Or she might be frustrated about the lacking in the relationship with her father, the male role model. So she could think I could do better than that. So it's about role models and could the the child's disappointment in the parent's role modeling lead them to trans identification? Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there's a lot that I read in this question. I think the mother's having some doubts about whether or not she has set an example that her daughter would want to strive towards And of course, you know, in that, and of course, we're making a lot of assumptions here because we don't have this parent to to speak with. But I, I sense that perhaps this mother is maybe asking herself some questions about, you know, she's, she's got some struggles in her marriage. She does, she feels bound and financially dependent. I mean, I think this is a question that also um, is coming from the, the mom and some of her feelings, some of her doubts, some of her maybe longed for, you know, what, what could have been, what, what could I have done differently? I, I don't know. I just, I felt sad reading this because I felt the mother was kind of blaming herself in a way and expressing maybe some other things that were going on for her. Yeah. You know that, you know, that line <laughs> messing around with Freud's uh, concept, if it's not one thing, it's the mother. <laughs> <laughs> heard that like I I really do think that people who 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 have uh, children who identify as trans 
generally the the parents very often say, what what have I done wrong? Have I not been a good role model? That is a very easy jump to think, have I frightened them off from being a woman or have are they running away from womanhood or mm-hmm. it's a very it's it's very easy to jump there it's not necessarily correct but it's a it's a very easy jump to make and also i think if your child is very different from who you are if, if your child takes a very different road whatever that might be trans included you can easily think i i have created this and have have we how how much influence do we have uh, as parents it's really debatable mm. well you know i think um i think it's it's possible right i do I, I know i've heard lisa marciano talk really eloquently about this but i do think there's something interesting about the same sex parent child relationship in rogd and lisa has said you know sometimes this is a way of saying you know I'm nothing like you. I'm so much not like you that I'm not even a woman anymore. And when I first heard her say that, I thought, wow, that's really powerful. And so this is also, you know, a very, I try to remind parents, there's something, the the root of this is developmentally normal and healthy for a daughter to find a unique way of being a person in the world that's not a carbon copy of mom. I mean, that's very normal and healthy. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that, um, you know, your specific life choices or the way things have panned out are are literally what she's going against. It could have been the type of thing where even if you were a very kind of high powered, fast paced career woman, she might have said, like, I would rather stay home and have kids. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it could have been any kind of reaction to the mom's identity. So I just I guess I would start by encouraging mom not to blame herself too much. I've seen every possible iteration of ROGD uh, family, sometimes very surprising versions of, of families. And I guess I would also say, you know, I hope it's not overstepping my place, but the tone of that question made me want to encourage mom to kind of take care of herself and tune in to see like, is there something that you need mom? that you're curious about or that you would like to to look into for your own life, your own self. I got that too. There was a wistfulness in that email that was very tangible. And it was along the lines of, I could have had a life and I've chosen not to. I've, I've, I've made choices and I'm moderately happy. I have some regrets. And has my child taken up on the, has picked up on those, and gone and I would say probably not so much I would say there's probably more more complicated reasons driving it however I'm very interested in in you and I remember mm-hmm. once I had this client uh, a kid she was maybe 13 or 14 and the mom brought her in and the client was frankly fine and after about two or three sessions I uh, I spoke to the mother and I said I oh, she you know she's all right like the, you know there's a bit but it's okay I said however I just have to say it there's a sadness that's emanating from you that I, I really, I, I feel it would be remiss for me not to. And like she, she, she nodded and we ended up being working together for a long, long time. A long, a very good, productive. I'm glad I said it. It was pretty outrageous of me. It wasn't called for. I wasn't. <laughs> it vibrated off her. 
And yeah. I thought of that client when I read that email. I thought, I, I remember that. <laughs> do, do you know, I'm not totally out of turn. The hell do I know? But I did get it and it sounds like you got something too. Mm. So. Well, it just kind of also like make me think about the fact that a lot of times when there's a family, everybody's resources go to the child. And so the child, if the child needs therapy, the child gets therapy and whatever the child needs. And then of course, parents end up putting their own needs on the back burner sometimes. And I can sense that sometimes I'm working with a client and I'm like, Oh, these parents probably, they probably would appreciate having somebody to talk to or a place to kind of air their own concerns or worries and, Instead, all the resources in the family go to the child's therapist. And so sometimes that comes up and, and you hear that behind the trans-identified child, there's a family in a lot of pain for their own reasons. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's very good modeling, just to throw it out there. I think it's very good modeling to mm-hmm. show your child that you're looking after your own emotional health and you're becoming happy. I think it's one of the great gifts of liberation you can give to your kid, that I'm looking after my happiness. Really powerful, powerful to send to your child. To live by example. I mean, you kind of, especially with a same sex child, you should ask yourself if my child at this particular age was exactly in the scenario I'm in, would I be happy for her? What would I hope she could do? Would this be a good life for her? And the same for fathers, you know, like to ask yourself that about your, your son in your life. This is kind of getting deep, but I, I think that's so good, Stella, that to show your children the value of taking responsibility for your own life, it's it's so important. Very powerful. It's very powerful. And it's a gift to you and to your family to do it. And yeah. people don't want to do it. They want to put the focus all on the kid. Yeah. And, and no, no, it's, it's, it's a short-sighted kind of. That's right. Yeah, to, to go at it. Will we see is there any other questions there's a few more there's a few more I think we can probably get to a couple so um let's go on to number four here so how to talk to siblings about their brother and sister's gender issues well you know this comes up in the GDSN the gender dysphoria support network because we have meetings every so often for siblings and they've been very sad poignant reflective interesting meetings you know and I I, one thing an awful lot I I have so much to say really about this but one of the siblings and one very common theme among the siblings is living with secrecy living with not that the family have definitely declared it a secret but that the sibling doesn't know how to communicate the complexity of what they're living with so they tend not to bring it up because mm. it's all just too hard to bring it up. Too much, you know. Blah. So they, they want to talk about themselves. And if they bring up this sibling, it's just going to be all that. And so they tend not to. And so they're living slightly inauthentically and certainly, definitely, they're omitting parts of their narrative. Then there's a whole other that, that nobody knows. So it's pure secrecy. It's true secrecy that nobody knows outside the family. And then there's a huge amount of, now I've really noticed this coming up a lot recently, of the younger kids, like the kid is maybe three, the sibling, and the, 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 the sibling is six. And ha- how to 
explore that with the sibling. I think that's really hard for, for children that young. Do you guys give, at GDSN, do you give parents advice on whether or not to share information with siblings? Because I think that's what the, the listener was asking about. Well, like all things with every single, you know, to do with 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 children, it's age appropriate. You have to be age appropriate. So if the child is three, you have to be age appropriate if the child is six. However, I do think this is really psychically complex for, for the three year old. And I, re- I remember actually my own kids were at a party and uh, the, the trans kid was there and they had known the kid before they identified and it caused a whole Mm. all the kids in the party were were all grappling with it you could see it all happening you could see it all unfold and um i i do think if the kid is three that is quite hard and i i'm i don't have any answers and i i don't know that there is any guidelines out there that i would really recommend I, i haven't come across them I mean, I always tell parents there's no formula to this. There's no formula. And um, I think that if you can, I think it's best to shield the sibling if they're clueless. I mean, if the sibling is asking you what's going on with so-and-so, why is she saying she's boy? That's a different story. But unless you really have to, I would say you want to try to keep the situation as normal seeming as possible for the other child. And I don't know the the specifics that this mother or this parent wrote in about, but I do in the event that you have to talk to a sibling, you have to kind of assess a couple of things. Sometimes the sibling is a social justice activist. And then you become in this kind of, not exactly a triangulation, but it becomes siblings against mom and dad. Yeah. And that's a very tricky and complicated situation. Sometimes it's kind of like what you're describing Stella, where the siblings very heartbroken that they feel they're losing their brother or sister. And that's very difficult, but I think it's important for the parents as much as they can to, um, be mindful of those factors when they're deciding, well, what do I say? You know, you have to know you're the sibling, like how, how likely is it for the sibling to turn against you or to be understanding? And if you are going to share the information with a sibling, it's valuable. I think to frame it in a way that the parent kind of sets the narrative. Like for example, you know um, you know, we love, so-and-so very, very much, but right now so-and-so is kind of struggling with their sense of body and identity, and we understand this is important to them, but we are um, we are giving it some time, and we're not really making any changes yet. So that's kind of a, a one example of a million ways you might try to set the tone so that it doesn't run away from you. Mm. There are more complicated uh, scenes I've I've heard where, like, let's say, child is five or six and you know the older brother is growing breasts and has now become a woman and that the child knows it and is talking about it and I think that's when you're going to have to say in an age-appropriate way when they're changing their body because they want to be a woman and they're going to live as a woman and um that is that is so new, hard. Yeah, that is very hard for that young sibling. I, I do think it is hard for them, and they they 
show signs of, of finding it. Like I know people say, oh, kids are very resilient. They are, but it is a big concept mm -hmm. because they knew them as the, the big brother and now they have to re readjust to being the big sister. And I, I would say that that will need attention and certainly exploration mm -hmm. for that child. But I also think that there is birth order. And if, if you have been the oldest girl and now your big brother, who you looked up to as a big brother, is now the oldest girl, that can be complicated. That that has a whole birth order is really important. And if you look mm -hmm. at adoption, they always have guidelines. Well, always have had guidelines that you adopt if you've got children biological children you adopt under you know you adopt younger you don't mess with the birth order I remember because I remember Angelita Jolie did mess with the birth order and I said tut tut Angelita if you're listening. <laughs> Stella was not impressed I'm sure, she I'm sure she's listening <laughs> Brad is definitely listening uh, hello he's um, over there do you want me to go get him he's in my kitchen <laughs> But um, the birth order should not be messed with because it's very hard. If you're the oldest boy, you should remain the oldest boy. If you're the, you know, the because it, it's just psychically very hard to, to to mess around with that. And so, if you have been the only girl in the family, and now you're not the only girl in the family, you've been dethroned. And I think it does take psychological attention. Oh, yeah. I do think it needs attention, and I don't think there's any room been given to it. I don't think the siblings are getting a look in so far. The parents want to give them a look in. It's not through want, but I don't see where's all the talk of the trans siblings. I don't hear it at all. I really don't. But, but I think even in those types of scenarios, I mean, you can tell me what you think, but I think it's very important for parents to get ahead of the narrative because it's one thing yeah. if you say to the sibling, oh, actually, your your brother was never your brother. He was always a girl. And now he's just getting the right body. That's very different from saying your brother has had some questions about his identity. Like the more honest and kind of reality based you can be, I think the better because the magical kind of uh, metaphysical quality to the way trans is described these days. I think that's very confusing and disorienting and not healthy. So I totally agree that there's very complicated issues that are interwoven here and being able to speak with the children in a truth-based way that still tries to be somewhat kind of respectful of the trans-identified child is important. Um, one or two things I want to raise is people think it's exceptionally unusual to have two trans siblings in the family, and it's not. It's, it's much more common than you think. Yeah. People think when they've got one trans kid, they think, well, that's it. And what are the they might mention, you know? Especially in the meetings, they might mention the other kid is, is kind of um, quite quite you know, dabbling, for want of a better word. And I'm like, yeah, no, they, 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 they could quite easily trans. Like, don't think that this is, and every time I say this is common or this is not uncommon, the parents like look at me in shock. Like, mm -hmm. How could that be? And actually, you're you're nodding as if to agree. Yeah. I have seen this happen. Yeah. And it's really, uh, oh, gosh, it's so tough for the parents because while they're just pulling their hair out, trying to help the trans-identified kid resolve their issues, kind of waiting in the wings as the sibling, watching all of this go down, and perhaps 
you know, keeping their questions to themselves because they see that this is causing conflict in the family. And it's, it's absolutely important for people to realize that we are not talking about statistical, we're not talking about statistical probability anymore. We're talking about the social contagion and the concept coming into the family and the ability for that concept to spread to other siblings. And again, you know, there's subconscious factors at play. If one child becomes trans identified and the other child is recognizing how much of the family's energies and time and resources are spent on the trans identified child, it's not like they're doing it on purpose thinking, Oh, I think I should do that. But it just becomes this, this way that you can gain the family's attention, even if there's some conflict around it. So there are so many reasons that this unfortunately can, can, I don't want to say spread, but can happen to multiple siblings. And I think Stella, I mean, we plan to do an episode about um, families and what happens in the other kids' lives in the house and extended family. And I think we should touch on this some more because I, I think it's important. Yeah, there's there's loads more to say about that. We better go on. The, thank you for that lovely question. And there's so many, and you know, keep them coming in. But this list is big, so you will need patience, and you'll need to listen to every single po- podcast episode that we release to find your question. <laughs> there's a last one that we were going to just touch on, um, which I thought was really good about what episodes can parents li- listen to with their um, ROGD kids. Yes. And it was to start off, we would say that lifts up a whole concept about sharing gender related content with your kids. That in itself, we could do an episode on that. As yeah. if, that in itself is a, it's a tricky. Yeah. Is it tricky? Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. Tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. You, you, you know, you, you can, it can work so well. People have said to me, I know you told me not to tell it, but I shared X with them and now they're desisting. And the rest mm-hmm. of the meeting go, oh, what are you going to say about that still? And <laughs> all the other parents are probably like, I'm never listening to Stella yeah. again. <laughs> and they'd be right, because honestly, we're finding our way and the parents are expert of the kids. And I often say, and I really believe it, that you probably know your kids. You're probably in the top five. Even if you think you don't know your kids, you probably know them you're in the top five of knowing them on the planet, if you follow me, that you you probably know them quite deeply. And parents are, they've been de-skilled and they've been dethroned and they've been dismissed. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, they, they if they think instinctively and intuitively, this is what I should do, I would be very reluctant to get in the way of any parent who thinks that about anything because, you know, walking in their moccasins, as they say, you know, I don't know what it's like. The family dynamic, it's like a little planet. You're in your own kind of galaxy with your family. And what will wash with your family won't necessarily wash with another family. And it could be exactly the right thing to do. So that's my caveat with gender-related content. I want to add a caveat to your caveat really quickly. <laughs> I 100% agree. And actually, one of the things I'm always telling parents is to trust their instinct. And parents will say, what should I do about this? What should I do about this? And a lot of times I'll say, look, I, I don't feel comfortable giving you concrete advice. You have to do what you think is best. But 
sometimes the rift that exists between parents and their children is so great that parents are trying to guess what's going on for their child. And they're making those guesses based on reading ROGD information, gender critical, you know, information on trans issues. And sometimes there's a huge gap. And so what parents are feeling instinctually is perhaps based on a picture that's not quite accurate. Uh So I think some families are able to stay really well connected and have frequent conversations with their child and just generally stay close, not necessarily just about the gender. And in those cases, their instinctual reactions are probably much more on target than families who are very, very, very distant from their child. And they're just kind of throwing, you know, darts at the wall. They don't know what's going on. So that that's the caveat. But here are some episodes yeah. that we've heard from parents that they watched with their children. And we, we thought of a couple that could be good. So number one is about trans, the concept of identity versus dysphoria. Number 14, the real ways to manage gender dysphoria. And interestingly, Stella told me that, um, tell, tell us about parents showing their kids episode 16, which is what this is like yeah. for parents. This came from nowhere. A few parents have said to me, um, I got my kid to listen to episode 16, which is what it's like for parents. And it was very good for them because they suddenly realized, oh, I didn't know something was going on for you. Like, you know, <laughs> no, anything was going on for you. So it was very good. And I think that's building empathy. And it's it's very good for the family to be reminded. I, one thing that I, I really object to is when I don't care what what is going on, when one person in the family gets more importance than everybody else. It's inappropriate. No matter what is going on for that kid or that person, it has to be balanced with, we are all equally important. It doesn't matter. And I think parents really have to. So yeah, episode 16 is is a, a surprise one. And um, the um, there's a few more. There's episode, let me think. 12? Yeah, which is about identity versus role confusion. The point being in that one is that, you know, you are forming your identity. And that is, that takes some time. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an age old concept, and um, that can be very interesting for, for for young people to listen to with their parents. And then also episode four: Why do people seek a new identity? Like, why do they do it? Uh, yeah, we and we might even, we might even kind of craft an episode specifically for parents to listen to with their children, maybe where we address them each in, in the episode. Like I think it'd be really interesting to do something like that. So thank you for asking these questions. This is definitely on our radar now. Um, And let's see what else. So I don't think we have time for the rest of these Stella, but we will add these to our future list. So here are some ideas for future episodes that we think would be valuable to spend a whole show on. So one of them is um, about social transition, right? Because we have these kind of competing narratives. One narrative says social transition statistically seems to lead to a more um, likelihood of medicalization. But we think actually this is really context dependent. It's not so simple. So we'll do an episode on that. we definitely got a lot of questions about giftedness as it relates to 
um, uh, intelligence quotient versus emotional intelligence quotients and ASD autism. So there's a lot about giftedness and autism there. Female puberty. So oh, yeah. early, early puberty, one. menstruation periods. And then there's one I think about maybe power. We could do a whole episode about power, power struggles, um, parent activism, parents pushing maybe too hard their power, the compulsively compliant child and how to handle when they make a bid for power. So power in itself could be a whole and maybe, you know, seeking power with with transition. So that could be a whole episode in itself. The um, I do think the um, the one that uh, somebody said about social transition as well as not just social transition, maybe it'll be a separate episode or maybe we'll within it. But, you know, the, the issues, the psychology around chest binding and packers and all the accoutrements, mm. that, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. one, one parent I thought was really, really good point. They said, um, you often talk about a script that kids are finding online. How about a script for parents to respond to their kids? And I thought, you know, that 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 could be really helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone else brought up the fact that there's not a lot of curiosity about autoandrophilia um, and the the FTM's fascination with becoming male or the attraction to themselves as male, and also the fascination with gay male stories, gay male anime, <laughs> gay male porn. And this idea of like, do I want that person or do I want to be that person? That's a really interesting question. And I think that would be fascinating to dedicate an episode there. And well, while I'm on the topic, I mean, we've had excellent engagement from our listeners on Twitter about uh, autogynephilia and sharing different perspectives on that and things that our listeners think we might be missing or may not understand. So I'm really curious to continue that dialogue and perhaps revisit the topic of autogynephilia in its own separate episode. Yeah, there's also um, a people, and I thought it was a great idea, was um, children under 80, children like early onset gender dysphoria, and to talk about that, and then the concept of, you know, adult, young adults, mm-hmm. and the concept around that, and I thought that they would both be really good episodes. Do you know what I mean? Because it's very different yeah. these days. And the whole, like, an awful lot of worrying around going to college and finances and insurance and things like mm-hmm. that, they mm-hmm. could be very good episodes. There's so many, so many. Yeah. Really, I'm really appreciative of the listeners and the comments have been gorgeous. So another one that comes to my mind is, like, therapeutic strategies. You know, someone asked, how do you invite young people to explore these questions in the therapy room? And I think that's very important to talk a little bit about kind of specifics, the the nitty-gritty of when you have um, a teenager who's struggling with gender dysphoria, how do you support them? And furthermore, sometimes, but not always, sometimes teenagers we meet are very ideologically possessed, And so it almost becomes similar to working with somebody who's in a very strict religion or some kind of a group or a cult or something like that. So sometimes there's a really strong ideological component. So how do we work with that in therapy? Um, And I do want to put in there just just for parents, because I know you the parents listen, that we we certainly as therapists, if we're trying to, you know, connect with with an ideologically kind of struck um, young person, one thing we don't do is wave science papers in their in their face. Do, do you yeah. know what I mean? We really try to reach the person behind 
all the, 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 the talk and the concepts and the theories and the beliefs. And um, I think waving signs doesn't really work. I, I just really don't really. Now, I, there's always exceptions to the rules. And some people will say, I gave them a science paper and it's the best thing ever. But I would say, nah, that's not where I'd go. Just as a therapist, I, I, I wouldn't go anywhere near the science. Wouldn't know, just personally wouldn't go anywhere near it. Are you the same? Yeah, I think there's a time and place for it. I mean, during the initial kind of relationship building stage, yeah. I would not touch that with a 10-foot pole. I'm more curious about the individual person and what their struggle is. And sometimes to read between the lines, you have to just let the client say what they think and explain it from their perspective. I do think sometimes there comes a point in therapy where, let's say, a young person is, is exploring actually embarking on some kind of a medical process. That might be a good time to say, okay, this sounds like something important to you. Um, I think it'd be valuable to look through uh, what some of the research literature says and doing it in a really non-confrontational way. So I think you're right. And this kind of goes back to the question that a parent asked earlier, of what, what episodes should we listen to with yeah. our child? I would say not the hormonal interventions episode, not the trans medicine um, intervention or experimentation episode. So I would say avoid the heavy science-based episodes and yeah. um, maybe go towards episodes that are more exploratory and curious and hold space for, you know, some of these concepts in a way that is gentle and with a light touch. I saw one person I asked, I thought it was great. Uh, I could just do an episode on non-binary and I thought, yeah. Yes. Oh, for really? sure. I have lots of opinions on that. <laughs> As I do on everything. <laughs> There's so many and so many more. Yeah. We could be here all night. One thing I would like to do is the one about talking to the extended family and the extended community and how to communicate and how to handle it. We'll bring in the siblings to that, but talking to the grandparents and sometimes the grandparents are very old and they're, you know, there's, there's physical life crises going on. So that can be very hard. Mm -hmm. Another parent, another parent wrote similarly about just the extended community in which they live. You know, they're, they're a liberal family and they have other liberal friends in their community. So we're talking about, you know, friends from the community center or your gym or your church or your school or your best friend. I mean, it's really, really hard for families who are going through this, who all of a sudden have their perspective completely shifted and how do they talk to friends who don't get it? You know, so I think we'll do an episode on that as well. Yeah, I think we better watch it because we always said we'd be 60 minutes. We've crept into 70 minutes. Here. That's okay. I think we can do a little bit We're of creeping. It's a Saturday. So, <laughs> well, that was great, Stella. I think this has been really fun, and I hope we can do this again. I really enjoy hearing from our listeners. It's it's great to get your questions, and we hope we've done uh, service to the questions yeah. that were sent in. And we really look forward to putting together some of these full episodes. These are great ideas. Brilliant ideas, really brilliant ideas, and keep them coming in. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee 
slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 